please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The title of my sermon this morning is, All Must Appear Before the Judgment Seat of Christ. And we will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That will be our main text this morning. Follow along with me, if you will, as I read 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is Paul writing from Macedonia to the church at Corinth. And Paul tells them, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as I read that, I thought, well, that's a very interesting passage. And what exactly is Paul talking about? This is one of those passages, if we just pull it out of Scripture, one could make it say almost anything one wants. You could come at it from different angles. It could be positive. It could be negative. It could be threatening. It could be a warning. It could be all of those things. But what is Paul talking about? Well, it's important as we read our Bibles, as we study them, and as we preach the word, that we put the passages in context. There's a context to everything. There's a reason why a specific thing is said. And when we understand the reasoning, what's going on at the time and place when the original audience gets this message, it helps us, the later audience, to apply it to our lives. So we're going we're gonna to dig into this. We're going to get into some of the background, and we're going to take a, a very um, short journey through Paul's letters to the Corinthians to see what's behind all of this. What is Paul saying, and why is this so important to us? And I guarantee you, like all of God's word, it is very important to us. So, as many of you know, but just as a refresher, or in case you don't know, some interesting facts. On Paul's second of his three missionary journeys, he founded a church in Corinth. And as was Paul's practice, he stayed there for a period of time. In this case, the book of Acts tells us about 18 months. And then, after he had prepared men to lead the church, he moved on. Well, Paul moves on to Ephesus after finding the church in Corinth. But once he's in Ephesus, he gets some troubling news about his recently formed church in Corinth and the recently converted Greeks that make up that church. There was many ethical concerns that he'd heard about, what was going on there. He'd heard there was division and disunity. There was sexual immorality in the congregation, including even incest. And there was civil litigation amongst the believers there. The disunity was so great that the brethren were taking each other to the civil courts to sue them over different matters. Now, bearing in mind, these Corinthians were largely Greeks, they were pagan before their conversion. They did not have the background in, um, in Jewish religion, in Jewish 
ethics. They came from a culture that, sadly, I must say, is very much like our own. And they lived in this place that was, that was a very, very important city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Greece. It was a seaport city on the isthmus that was connecting the Peloponnesian um, uh, to the, the main, the main um, body of Greek, Greece, uh, Achaia. So right in between these, these two areas, Athens was up above in Achaia, Sparta, two cities that you undoubtedly have heard of, was in the Peloponnese. So Corinth was in between in this little skinny peninsula, and it was a seaport, very important seaport. It was so important it had two ports because the eastern port is where the trade from Asia came. The western port is where the trade from Europe and Italy and Rome came to. So you had basically the world meeting here. And like all seaport towns, it was very metropolitan. Travelers from all over the world are mixing. There was many different languages spoken. There were many different religions that were being, um, being spoken there. Uh, the people thought of themselves as culturally elite because of this. They were in touch with everything that was going on in the world. Think of New York City. New York City is similar. It's a, it is a very important port. Um, and so the demographics, the makeup is, is quite similar. And the interesting thing we find about major seaports throughout the world in ancient history and even today is that they were infamous because of the mixing of many cultures. Um, there was a, a, a tolerance of uh, divergent uh, mores and, and ethics. Uh, people um, were, felt that they were above what the, um, the people from Judea might think, that, you know, in their, in their closed little Jewish society that, that dictated everything they, they would do. Um, uh, Corinth was, was much different, and like seaport towns, it was noted for sexual licentiousness and promiscuity. So we have this geographic and cultural peculiarity that's going on in, um, in Corinth. It made it an ideal spot to establish a church. A church, a Christian church in this location would impact people from all over the world. So the Holy Spirit had led Paul there to do that. But these, these things that made it a good place for a church also presented unique difficulties for converts. Think of these people, as I said, they were Greek pagans before their conversion. They had no background uh, like the Jews did uh, as to how God wanted his people to live. So obviously, they kind of went off the rails uh, pretty quickly after Paul and Timothy and Silvanus or Silas um, left. Uh, these three pastors left and turned it over. Um, so Paul writes a letter to, to the Corinthians um, because of this information. And this letter is previous. It comes before what we know as 1 Corinthians. Um, it has not been preserved. We, we don't have it. 
Um, following the sending of that letter, letter, Paul received further bad news that the church had really split into factions. And by way of reply to this bad news, Paul writes the letter we have today that we call 1 Corinthians. He informs the Corinthians that he has sent Timothy to them as a special envoy. Well, when Timothy arrives, he found that Paul's authority had been undermined. There were some Jewish men who had come in to the church that were opponents of Paul. They called themselves super apostles, and they made superior claims to the mission of Paul and his helpers. They apparently had letters with them that, uh, that lauded them and said that they were uh, to be in charge of what was going on in Corinth. It was so bad that Timothy couldn't do anything. He, he had to leave in the face of this opposition. And he returned to Ephesus with the bad news. Paul hears it, and he makes a journey to Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians 2.1, we learn that this journey just was a humiliating rebuff to Paul. It didn't go well at all. As a result of that humiliating visit, Paul writes a severe letter to the Corinthians. And he says, although it cost him much affliction and anguish at heart to write such a letter, he knew it had to be done if the rebellious Corinthians were to be restored to apostolic obedience. The severe letter he gave to Titus to carry to Corinth. But this letter, like the very first one, has been lost to us. We we don't know what it says other than Paul's references to it. So Titus delivers the letter. And he returns back to Paul with a largely reassuring response from the Corinthians. The letter had the effect that Paul had intended. Although these false teachers that were in the church there had infiltrated infiltrated the church by presenting letters of commendation, and they encouraged a minority to remain in rebellion against apostolic teaching, the majority of the Corinthians were humbled by the severe letter that they had received. And they had been, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, they had been grieved into repenting. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, think of all of this that has gone on. He gives free expression to all these emotions that he's felt in dealing with the Corinthians. He basically takes down the wall of reserve that he might have normally. And he bears his heart and his soul in writing our 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is like the most personal of all Paul's letters. We can really see the heart of a pastor in them. And he wrote this letter to prepare the Corinthians for his third visit to them. He wanted to ensure that this third visit would be a joyful visit, not a visit made in sorrow or in anger. 
And this background, this understanding that we, we can gain from all of this brings us to our first point, which is that false teaching brings conflict and division into the church. So this is apparent in the background of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians and the things I've just explained. A deeper understanding of the impact of false teachers and exactly what they do to Christ's church can be found in the short book of Jude. Jude verses 11 through 13, which I'm going to read to you. Jude 11 through 13. Jude, one of the Lord's half-brothers who comes to faith in Christ after Jesus is resurrected, comes out of the tomb and appears for him. This is what Jude writes. He describes these false teachers and what awaits them. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. What is Jude saying when he uses all these descriptions? We have to draw on the Old Testament to know what Jude is talking about. Without the Hebrew scriptures, we'd be kind of lost. We, you might get a sense of, well, this is, you know, they're, they're in trouble. They're not, they're not good. There's, there's issues here. But let's look at it specifically to find out what we're being told false teachers do to the church. Jude says they are like Cain. In other words, they turn on their brothers and murder them due to jealousy. He says they're like Balaam, remember Balaam, after what he did, the Israelites, the men, fell prey to the Moabite women who enticed them with sexual um, activity in a demonic, cultic, pagan way. So like Balaam, they lead the assembly into lusting after that which the Lord has forbidden of his people. And like Korah, they rebel against God's anointed and appointed leaders, as Korah did with Moses, trying to persuade the weaker brothers in the assembly to instead follow them. And like Korah, following them back into bondage to sin and the devil. Like hidden reefs. You can imagine a hidden reef and a ship sailing smoothly on the waters. The crew, the captain, not realizing unless they have a chart. Unless they have a book that warns them of a hidden reef. Where suddenly they're wrecked upon the reef. They lurk beneath the calm surfaces of our gatherings. Waiting for that unsuspecting ship. And they feast without fear because, going back to our main text 
In 2 Corinthians 5.10, they do not understand that they, they too must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If we understand that, how can we work against our Lord when we are told quite plainly that all will be held accountable for their actions? They're shepherds feeding themselves. In other words, they're self-focused. They're self-consumed. It's all about them. They're like waterless clouds. They promise blessing and growth. Imagine a farmer looking at the clouds coming. But they pass on by. They hold no water. They're only a sign of a spiritual drought. Swept along by winds, so they're unstable. Unable to remain in place. Moved from place to place by the slightest disturbance. Jude goes on to say they're like fruitless trees in late autumn. They provide no nourishment. They're spiritually barren. Even though they appear mature, they've had time to grow, there's nothing that comes from them. He says they are twice dead and uprooted. What's Jude talking about? Twice dead. He's talking about the first death our physical death, which all of us will experience unless the Lord comes before that time. So they will experience the first death, like many of us. And yet, they also experience the second death, which we understand, book of Revelation tells us that is a spiritual death that is awaiting those who are judged for their sins, the wicked that are not in Christ And the way it is written in the Greek, this is an accomplished fact. It's not as going to happen. Jude is saying this has happened, which means in the view of God, this this is basically a done deal. It's accomplished in the view of God. And he says they're wild waves of the sea, sea, foaming up their own shame. So they're like destructive waves in a storm. You've been at the beach when there's a storm far out at sea or maybe a a storm on the, 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 the coast itself. You know the waves are unpredictable. They're unstable. The waves pick up foam and debris, scattering it everywhere. And like these stormy waves, these, these false teachers can be generated into this activity by something happening far away. And their actions are morally reprehensible, bringing shame. As, as Jude says. And just as a person standing on the shore avoids the waves of a storm, so should we avoid these people. There's this description of him that I, of these false teachers that I find particular, particularly um, intriguing. He says they're like wandering stars. Many commentators refer that to um, meaning that they're worthless as navigational guides. That's a common interpretation. I think that's a very good interpretation. Um, So they don't provide the guidance that someone uh, would need, would be looking for. (coughs) Again, a maritime sort of reference. But I think there's also something deeper there than that. That's, That's a good reference. That's a good idea to have. But if you understand ancient Israelite cosmography, 
What Jude is also referring to is they are like the rebellious angels. Wandering stars, that adjective wandering from a Greek root word, which means error or deceit. Stars, or celestial bodies, are connected to the heavenly host in, in ancient Hebrew writings. We see this in Job 38.7. It speaks of when God laid the foundations of the earth. And the verse says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Speaking of the angels in heaven. In Isaiah 14.12's taunt of the king of Babylon which is analogous to a high-ranking angelic rebel, where Isaiah writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. So Jude's aligning these false teachers with the cosmic powers of evil that are set against God and his people. And just like these angels in rebellion, these false teachers face the same Destiny, the gloom of utter darkness, which has been reserved forever. So after all of this going on and these, these, these false teachers creating this problem and the Corinthians going back and forth, you know, and kind of abandoning um, their, their, their founding pastor and treating him poorly, after all of this, does Paul have rebuke on his mind as he writes 2 Corinthians? And you might think from our main verse that he does, that he's, he's basically saying something along the lines of just wait till your father gets home. There's, there's a time when you're going to be appearing before the judgment seat of Christ and he's going to know about this. That's not what Paul is saying. There is, there is a very hopeful, wonderful, loving message that is in this. And, and that's why I wanted to bring this out because it can be taken wrong. We need to really look at it and dig deep to see exactly the assurance, the blessed assurance that Paul is talking about here. Paul says to the faithful in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1, 13-14, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. You will boast of us. What he's saying is that the saints in Corinth will boast of Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, who pastored them. And their pastors, Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, will boast of them. But why should we boast of one another? We know that what we have is not due to our own efforts. And it's not because we're so good at understanding or listening or preaching. It's not that at all. Because of one another, we grow in faith and knowledge of Christ. That is why the Lord wants us together to assemble. This is the beauty of the church. 
And because of one another, we are encouraged in our difficulties. We are not alone in the things we face. We have brothers and sisters that desire to walk through our troubles with us. We may forget that, but I just want to remind you of that. Because at times we can all feel isolated. And in the church, we are not. We never should be. We should never feel that way. A pastor boasts of his flock that responds to his love and care. And it's not because Paul is a pastor or his, his, his co-pastors thought that they were that great on what they did. Like, look what I did. They, you know, they're responding to me. No, it's the idea of a flawed man who is the chief of sinners being used by God, to bring his message of love and forgiveness to the people. What Paul is saying is that is so humbling that the Lord would pick me for this task. And the flock boasts of the love and care that their pastor has for them because it goes beyond human love and care. There's something supernatural in it, we all come from various backgrounds that are so different. Our views are different. We don't agree on things. But the love we have, we have it only because of God. Why else would you feel this way towards someone that you wouldn't want to chat with at the water cooler at work or sit down with a cup of coffee? But we have Christ in common, and then we long for each other's company. We long for each other's presence. That is the work of God within our midst. Paul, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, he writes of the day of the Lord Jesus as when we believers as well as the reprobate appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Excuse me, that's our, our main verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And notice that it is at this time when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 is talking about the day of our Lord Jesus and the boasting, notice that these are the same times. This is occurring at the same time. That's what I want you to see. It's like, um, so when we're appearing before our Lord at, the, at his judgment seat, it's not a time of fear for us. We're not offering defense. We're not offering excuses about this. This is why I messed up, Lord. This is why this happened, yada, da, da, da. No, it's a time of boasting. It's like, yes, yes, Lord, I give thanks for the men that you've sent in my life, the preachers and, and, the, and the everyday brothers and sisters who have witnessed to me. I boast of them because of you using them, I am now before you forgiven and declared righteous. Paul refers to this knowledge that Corinthians will have as they arrive on the day of their final salvation. It's because of their spiritual leaders that God has supplied and set over them. It's God's love for them. It's not the magnificence of any human being's effort. It's the fact 
that our Lord loves us so much that he takes men from various walks of life and draws them into the ministry. And many of these men go kicking and screaming and do not want to be there. It is not where they saw themselves that the Lord puts a burning fire in their, in their, in their core. He touches their lips with the burning ember to speak his word, and they cannot help but speak God's word. They're, they're driven. That's what's going on with Paul and his efforts with these very difficult people. I mean, you read about this stuff in the Corinthians and what Paul had to deal with. And there's that really cool and very, very funny meme that I'm sure most of you have seen of R.C. Sproul. And I don't know exactly where he is or what he's talking about, but he's got a mic and he's on stage. And I don't know what's going on with the congregation, the people he's addressing, but he says, what's wrong with you people? And I could just imagine Paul like, what's wrong with you people? But no, his heart's breaking for them and he wants to bring them back. He's not throwing up his hands and walking away. They have not and will not be abandoned, not by the men set over them, nor by our Lord as he has promised. I will never forsake you or leave you. That means that even though we may not be steadfast and faithful as we should be, just as the Corinthians disparaged Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus for a time, Those men have not disparaged the Corinthians. They boast of them. Now, brethren, that is not a normal human reaction. That again, I suggest to you, is supernatural. That's the Holy Spirit at work. It kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? That someone that is trying to destroy you, ruin you professionally, let's say, and maybe even personally, is someone that you boast of. Wow. Even though the Corinthians turned aside from the path of apostolic truth for a time, God did not abandon them to those false teachers that seduced them. God cares for his sheep. Not a one will be taken out of his hand. No one Not Satan himself, much less a false teacher, can take God's anointed out of his church permanently. God's appointed ministers have fought for them, in this case, the Corinthians. They, They have fought for them. They have waged a battle against spiritual darkness for them. And they have won by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. As we all know, true salvation cannot be won or lost. If you struggle with this, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. This is very important. Our salvation, which cannot be gained by our moral perfection, we cannot be perfect enough morally to gain salvation, cannot be lost by our moral imperfection. We may stumble, we may have difficult times, we may go through a period where we feel like we're in the wilderness, where we're parched, we're not, we feel like we're, we're, the, the spiritual drink has been 
withdrawn from us. That's just for a time. God always brings his sheep back into the fold. And it's not by our power. It's by his immense loving power. This brings us to our third point. Biblical teaching and preaching unite us and strengthen our faith as no human effort or cause can. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn back a little bit. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul has been speaking of the frailties and weaknesses of the human vessels in which God has entrusted the gospel message. What then is his attitude towards all of this? Is he defeated and discouraged and dismayed? Think of what we just learned about what he's gone through with these people. The answer is no. He's not discouraged. He's not defeated. He's not dismayed. It's faith that enables him to go on preaching the gospel because he knows that beyond the sufferings of this life lie unspeakable glories. In that passage's main sentence, which is verse 13, apart from the subordinate clauses there, there's three verbs that we're going to look at that are very important. Paul says, we have. He says, we believe. And he says, we speak. And all three of these are in the present tense to portray the continual activity of Christians. And in what he's writing, he draws on Psalm 116, verse 10, which says, I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So what Paul's saying, even though in this present world, a lived out faith based on God's revealed word will bring affliction, it will cause difficulty for us. But because of God's word, we have faith. And because of our belief, we must speak out. We cannot remain silent. What he's saying is true faith, true belief cannot be silent. And in verse 14 of this passage, Paul reminds his readers that they know. How do they know? Because they've been taught by Paul and his fellow ministers. That's how they know. Going into, back to the, the previous uh, book, 1 Corinthians, in that book, Paul asks this rhetorical question of the Corinthians ten times. He asks them, do you not know? And he expects a positive reply. He, re- he expects them to think, yes, yes, I know. Yes, 
we know because we have been properly taught. He and his co-laborers, Paul and the other ministers, had trained the Corinthians well in biblical truth. But the Corinthians needed to be reminded of these biblical truths periodically. That's our nature, all of us. The, the Corinthians aren't exceptionally bad. When we read about them, I mean, when I read about it, I think about our world right now. It's like, man, this is like Corinth, you know? And maybe it's even worse, but it's certainly not much better. The Corinthians need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of the biblical truth. That's why we're in church. That's why we listen to the word being preached. That's why we read our scriptures daily and meditate upon the word. But Paul, again, he's reassuring the Corinthians that God, who raised Jesus, will also raise them from the dead with Jesus. After all of these people did, after all their stumbling, he's reassuring them of that hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope for them. They have not lost it. They cannot lose it. And when he says, you'll be raised with Jesus, Paul does not mean that Jesus is to be raised again, but that Jesus, who's described as the first fruits of all of his people, the first to be harvested from the grave, the one who has opened the tomb for all of us, the tomb is not a closed sepulcher for any of you Christians. We will be free of that place. It will not, it cannot hold us because our Lord has broken the iron bars of death and no one can put those bars over us again. It's because we are, he says you will be raised with Christ because Christ guarantees the resurrection. <laughs> It is Jesus who will secure the glorious state of all believers and be with them in God's presence. There was an interesting um, thing that, that, that I found here in my study for this sermon. Um, note that I said Jesus will be with them in God's presence. I did not stay, say specifically the Father's presence because I found in the passages that I was using to, to uh, put together this sermon that there was a very interesting thing that really points to the Trinity, that really points to the unity among the Godhead. I'm going to read some of these verses to you. I'm going to do it quickly, so um, you know, don't, no need to try and, and turn there in your Bible. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Ephesians 5.27, he writes, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Speaking of, of Jesus Christ, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In Jude, verse 24, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We see the Trinity working in unity in this idea of our resurrection and our presentation before Christ's throne. This day when all who are in Christ are brought into God's presence, on that great day, Jesus will be with us because as John wrote in his first epistle, Jesus is our advocate. He's there to handle our case for us. It's like when you walk into a court of law, if you've ever had to do that, and you have an attorney waiting for you. An attorney is going to be your advocate. You don't have to worry about, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, this is frightening. Your advocate has it all well in hand. Jesus will be with us as our brother, according to Hebrews chapter 2, as our brother. We are family. Not only is he our advocate, we are in his family. In the Gospel of John 15, 14, Jesus says he will be with us as our friend, advocate, brother, and friend, as we appear before the judgment seat of his. You know this because you've been taught this. This has been preached to you. You have it written in your Bible. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, So we are always of good courage. I want you to hear the good news message that Paul is bringing about this, about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ to those like all of us who have stumbled. Because as he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, starting with verse 6, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you see how Paul's statement in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, is not and cannot be a threat to God's faithful people? That's not the intention. Paul has spoken encouragement after encouragement to these people who had gone wildly astray. There's no one I know of in any church I've attended in my Christian life that has done some of the things he talks about the Corinthians doing. These people have gone way, way far afield. They've gone far off the reservation, to use a metaphor. He's not being negative towards these people. They followed false teachers who had slandered Paul horribly. And just as there are those today who will call themselves Christians who slander Paul, 
if you read theology or you follow theology, you know that there are many scholars that have some very odd ideas about Paul that accuse Paul of hijacking Christianity from what the Lord, from what Jesus himself had set forth, that the church is not the church of Christ, it's the church of Paul. They're slandering him just like these false teachers. And there are Christians that are led astray for a time by these modern-day false teachers. Make no mistake, though, when the Corinthians read this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, these false teachers that they had amongst them would have come immediately to mind. Paul is clearly saying that these false teachers, they will be held to account. The message isn't so positive for those who slander our Lord's church. That brings us to our fourth point and our final point. We are all responsible for our actions in this life, and our actions have eternal consequences. Now, wait a minute. What do I mean by that? Is that, is that, con- is that sounds kind of contradictory to what I've been talking about. Well, no. Hear me out. I'm going to lead you through this, and you're going to see that it's not contradictory, but it's important to know. We must realize this. In my first career, when I was in law enforcement, one of the things that was a joy for me as I, as I became an older officer, as I rose up in the ranks, is that I could assist younger officers. I could mentor them and I could help them advance in their career, which was important to me because my department in law enforcement in general meant a lot to me. I'd poured my heart and my body into this job for 35 years, and I wanted to turn it over to the best people possible after it was time for me to move on. So I would help others, younger officers, prepare for advancements or to get special assignments. I was fortunate that I was able to work a lot of different, really cool assignments. I look back on it, and it's like, how in the world did they ever let me do all this fun stuff, and they paid me a good wage while I did it? What I found, though, is that there was not much I could tell the, the, uh, what we called the hard chargers, the, the, the officers that really um, had the police bug, so to speak, that wanted to do police work, that wanted to help people and serve the community. But there were a lot of officers that weren't like that. They would come to me when, a, when the flyer would come out from Human Resources. We are testing um, for the position of police sergeant on this date. Officers would come up to me, you know, uh, lieutenant, captain, chief. How, 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 do, I, how do I get promoted? Um, what, 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 what can I do? And another um, command officer that I worked with at the time, uh, when we were off in a meeting, just commanders, he made this observation. He says, it's like these, these guys think we have that there's magic beans to get promoted, that, you know, that the only way you get promoted is you got to know the secret formula. There's like this idea of gnosis, right? The Gnostic thing is like Gnostic police work. you gotta, you got to know the secret words to get promoted. So we would even have big promotional seminars that I'd be asked to teach at, and I didn't like teaching at those because it didn't go over well. I would tell the officers sitting there in the, in the auditorium, if you haven't 
started to think about promotion until you saw that flyer, then it's too late. There's nothing I can tell you when this test comes up in two weeks how to get promoted. You should have been thinking about that from the beginning. You should be thinking, how can I conduct myself in the best way possible? And I'm trying to make a, a connection here, and I don't know if I'm doing it very well. But, but you have to, we have to take our tasks seriously. We have to take being Christians seriously. We have to realize, I would tell these officers, I said, if you want to be a sergeant, when you're out there and you're going to be working nights, weekends, whatever, you at times will be representing the chief of police. And you have to function in his stead. He's entrusting you with his good name, and reputation. Well, as Christians, it's the same with Christ. It is, we are representing Christ when we go out in the world. So the Corinthians shouldn't be thinking about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ right before they think they're going to die. This is, they should be thinking of this, and we should as we go through our life. It's not just as we are on our deathbed or as we get bad news from the doctor that we're struggling with some horrible disease, that we should think about that. This should be in our mind. We should not have to really even think about it because we know the Holy Spirit is in us and where we go, we are claiming that territory for God, that it is God's land because of his people that are upon it. So anyway... The Bible uses words and imagery of judicial courts in reference to the final judgment. And in doing so, the Bible allows us, even prompts us, to use our knowledge of the human justice system to contextualize God's final judgment upon mankind. God wants us to understand as much as possible what he is revealing to us. So we know what happens in a court of law. Um, Maybe you've been there. You probably at least have seen, you know, a police or lawyer drama on TV, which all of them are, are uh, amazingly accurate. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. Ask Karen if I enjoy watching cop shows with her. She doesn't like watching cop shows with me because I'll be sitting there like, you got to be kidding me. Oh, that's not how we do that. That would never happen. And I take her joy away, so she watches it on another TV. So anyway, you know that in court... The accused is charged with violating the law, and evidence is presented. Most often a defense is given, but not always. And a verdict is rendered. In our, in our courts in the U.S., it's guilty or not guilty, usually. There's some other weird things, but those are the main ones. And if guilty, punishment is imposed. And biblical descriptions of the last judgment are very similar, but there's an important addition Those who are acquitted, those who are found innocent, and that's a verdict that the heavenly courts have, that the human courts do not have, those that are found innocent receive rewards. That's amazing. You can go to court, you can be judged, and you might get a reward. So we know that those who are in Christ will be found innocent. Christ takes that on for us. It is Christ who is being judged, not us. Christ's righteousness, as we say, is imputed 
and our crimes, our transgressions, our sins are given, are imputed and placed upon him. This is why Paul can have joy over the Corinthians. That's why he can have joy even though he's been afflicted. Because this outcome is guaranteed by the blood of Christ. But what we've done in the body during our life on this earth as Christians is important. We will not be punished. There is no threat of that. And maybe you might have thought I was implying that at the beginning. Well, that was kind of like my my hook. You know, it's like, oh, what is this guy saying? We know that we're not going to be judged. So it's like, yeah, what's going on here? I mean, you could take that verse, right, our main verse, and you could you could totally damage the good news with that verse, right? If you took it out of context, if you didn't know what the story of the Bible is all about. We will not and cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose rewards. What does this mean? How does it work out? Well, I can't say for sure. Although I'm certain it does not involve cash. So get that out of your head. We have to realize that our eternal life in the restored Eden, which is heaven and earth joined together again, will be similar to Adam and Eve's life in the garden of God, but it's going to be better. We will be taking our place as per God's design as adopted sons of God. We are adopted into his family. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the sons of God are members of his divine council that have responsibility and tasks to carry out in the name of our Lord God. We will be amongst those celestial beings. We will be the human, the mortal version of that. This is the point of Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. This parable is in Matthew's gospel amongst other parables where Jesus is teaching and, and giving parables about the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about heaven and what it's going to be like when he talks about that. He's talking about believers. Those who have done well will be rewarded. And the reward, according to that parable, is to be given even greater responsibility when their master returns. And those who do not perform as expected will have responsibility taken away and given to others. And those who are false and slander their master, as he says at the end of this parable, are cast out into the outer darkness. Those are the false teachers. So your faithfulness towards God as he, revealed, as he has revealed himself in Scripture, your lived-out Christian belief, which is apparent to others, and you're giving voice to it so that others will know, it's these seemingly inconsequential actions by which the world is changed and will be changed, and by which souls will be saved. So when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christ, your master, will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Please pray with me as we close our worship service.
Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Father, we give thanks for the blessed assurance you have given us of salvation. Father, it is nothing but good news to those who are in Christ. Father, I pray that those who are not in Christ, those that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they will hear this message, that they will realize that there is only one path of salvation. There is only one means of righteousness. There is only one way in which any human being would have joy in standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is because he or she is saved by Christ's righteousness. Father, we give thanks for this this day. We give thanks for the remainder of it, Father. We ask for blessings upon these people who have been present to hear this word. Father, I pray for those who are listening by live stream or sermon audio, Father, that that you may bless them. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.